Hi, and welcome to Five Good Thoughts. I'm your host, Jack Bodenhammer. Today, we are joined uh, by Janice Gertson, who is an expert and offers us five good thoughts on clergy response to domestic violence. Janice has researched and written and presented on this subject matter and, and brings her expertise to us today. Janice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad you're here today. Uh, this is a this is a tough topic. Uh, we know, um, and, and so I almost want to issue kind of a warning that we're talking about a very difficult thing here. Is that that fair to do? Yes, I always appreciate a content warning just in case someone will be triggered by anything. Sure. With that in mind, though, uh, very important subject, very important subject for the church. So let's begin with our five good thoughts for clergy response to the domestic violence, starting with number five. Number five, uh, attention to this topic is vital for the well-being of congregations. And that's just because it's so widespread. In the state of Texas, one in three women will be a victim of abuse in her lifetime. Nationally, the number is one in four. So you can see that Texas has a slightly higher um, number there. Men can also be victims of abuse, but about 85% of the victims are women. Every year, more than 10 million individuals are abused. And every day, more than 20,000 calls are placed to domestic violence hotlines. And sadly, Christian homes are not immune. Um, and one of the things about um, pastors and churches is they may not recognize that domestic violence is in their congregation because they might think that it happens to other people, but not to the ones that they are closest to. And that's really hard for the the women sitting in the pews who may not hear that um, that God loves them in the same way when they are being abused every day in the home. There could be shame and fear in it. Christian women are more likely to conceal the fact that they are being abused and they are more likely to stay in the marriage longer than women who do not claim a faith connection. So it's really important that clergy and congregations have this awareness that they know that the statistics um, are as high as they are, and to know that clergy and congregations are a valuable potential support for victims and survivors of domestic violence. Yeah, I think that's so important for us to think about in, in the just the first realization is, is not putting our head in the sand. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think that's the tendency and, and I mean, we see it over and over again with every news story about the church is we never, never thought it could happen here. And, and mm -hmm. it does. I mean, it does. Yeah. Right. So number four. Uh, it is necessary to be educated on toxic behavior, red flags and abuse. The National Domestic Violence Hotline defines domestic violence as a pattern of behaviors that are used to gain and maintain power and control over another person in an intimate relationship. And I love that definition because it doesn't include physical assault. And most people may be expecting the physical assault to be listed in a definition of domestic violence, but abuse is more than black eyes and broken bones. Abuse is about power and control. It's about coercion and force to control another person. And even though most people tend to think of physical violence, it is also verbal and emotional, financial, and even spiritual, or maybe especially spiritual for the people um, who are in a Christian home. Because 
Bible verses and, and scriptural thoughts might be used to wield power and control. Like you are required to submit to me in all things. Um, and that's taking that verse and twisting it out of content, out of context, sorry. Um, and so we have a lot of that happening in Christian homes. And we need to know that we must prioritize the safety of victims and children because people who perpetrate abuse against their spouse tend to also perpetrate it against their children. And growing up in a home where abuse exists is the largest predictor of whether a child will grow up to be either a perpetrator or a victim of abuse as an adult. So this is important for all areas and ages of the church. Yeah, I like that that definition, too, because it's not just just for married people. I think, um, you know, I, I work on uh, the campus of a very large university and um this is, this is an issue in dating relationships. Is that, do you think, you know, talk to us a little bit about that. Um, dating violence is extremely high and it's, it's high in the church as well. And I think that people who work with youth and college age students have a great opportunity to talk about the difference between toxic and healthy relationships. Let's end a toxic relationship before it turns into marriage because it only gets worse. I have had so many people tell me that they didn't recognize the red flags before they were married, but literally on the honeymoon, things started to get worse and only continued to get worse from there. Yeah, that's, and that just, we have students and, and young people at teachable ages. It seems like there's so much preventative work to be done. And again, it's hard in youth group to talk about these things, um, or it's hard in college ministry, but I think there's a doorway to do it well. Um, there is. And I think talking about it as a spectrum of relationships, we have toxic behavior in all kinds of relationships, not just dating relationships and not just marriage relationships. So it could be a work environment. It could be a family of origin. Um, it could be a youth group. We could talk about bullying because if you bring the, the word bullying into the conversation, a lot of people understand that and they can kind of see parallels between bullying and toxic behavior, um, even in intimate relationships. Yeah, that's so helpful. That's so helpful. Um, so number three, we must believe survivors. False reporting is really rare. It hovers at around 5%. So when a clergy person hears from a congregant that they are being abused, the first thought should not be, oh, she's making this up. The first thought should be, wow, how can I help? How can I get her to safety? What resources can I provide? What you hear about the abuse is probably only the tip of the iceberg because victims are so shamed by what they experience in a lot of cases that they're not willing to speak about the breadth and depth of the abuse that they are living with. So it's likely much worse than you are actually hearing about. Another thing in working with um, victims and survivors is assuring confidentiality. This is not a situation where a faith leader can hear the allegations about abuse and then run to the other spouse to confirm whether or not it's true. That violates the trust, that violates confidentiality, and it could increase the risk of the victim significantly. So um, always talking about confidentiality, we know that there are limits. If children are being harmed, we know that we must contact the proper authorities. Um, and know that it's not the victim's fault. The, it's not about what she did or didn't do in the relationship that caused the abuse. It's the choice of the person perpetrating the abuse to control the victim in that way. 
Yeah. There's a lot there. Uh, but you, you said something there of our, our first response is, should be, how can I help? Mm-hmm. And you listed a couple of things there of what we can do. What what other ways might we be able to immediately help uh, if we take the attitude of believing uh, the victim? How do you how do you work in that just immediate moment? What's some of the best things that we can do in that immediate moment? One of the first questions should be, are you safe? Or do you fear for your safety? And that might guide your next steps. If someone has a high fear for their safety, you would want to get them into a family violence shelter contact right away. Um, Or if you don't have one local, maybe the family violence uh, department of your police uh, station. But if they're not immediately concerned about their safety and well-being, you can maybe work just a tad bit slower. I would never say to drag this out, but you don't have the risk of harm hanging over um, the victim's head, you can maybe work on getting them connected to spaces and places that will help them because it needs to be about the victim's time timeline. We we need to give the victim autonomy in those choices. We can't swoop in there as a savior and just whoosh, try to take them out of the situation because that might do more harm than good. So it needs to be about presenting resources to the victim, asking questions. How can I help? Are you safe? what do you need from me at this point in time? It might just be an emotional support. Well, she tries to get several things together uh, before she makes that next step about what she needs to do. That's very helpful. Um, Yeah. You want to help in the right ways. I think, I think most ministers want to help in the right ways uh, and and don't want to step in the wrong direction. I think that's, that's really important. And uh, um and yeah, there's just so many factors you don't know that, that, that complicate situations, whether that's children, whether it's family of origin, whether it's, it's wealth and socioeconomic situations, any exactly. number of things that uh, there's not just, it sounds like, it doesn't sound uh, uh, that there's a clear cut path, but it takes right. a lot of listening. It takes a lot of listening. Um, one reason that victims are hesitant to leave besides their children and finances are pets. There's mm-hmm. just um, a fear of leaving a pet behind in a toxic situation. So it could be something as, as, you know, in your mind, as small as like, oh, the favorite family dog, but that could be a really big deal to the victim and the children who have had that pet as part of their family for multiple years. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And uh, in, Yeah just a lot there. So number two is our traditional place for resources. So help us, what resources can you put in our hands to help us not only understand, but also maybe uh, offer some, some healthy and right intervention? Certainly. I think the number one resource is to know your local family violence shelter. Almost every county is going to have one, or if it's a rural county, there should be one nearby. I encourage um, clergy members and faith leaders to get to know that shelter, speak to the director, take a tour if they offer it. That way you have a visual of where you're referring your congregants to when they need that service. It becomes more of a, a warm referral rather than just, oh, hey, take this number, make this call. It really helps to have that connection already done before you need it. Um, licensed counselors, domestic violence causes trauma. Um, I think there is a valid place for pastoral counseling, but domestic violence is probably outside uh, the 
what most clergy people are trained to deal with. And it's important to note here that couples counseling is contraindicated in cases of abuse. And that's for safety reasons. You put um, an abusive couple, you know, a couple where there's abuse in the same room and the abuser is going to control that counseling session and the victim is not going to be allowed to speak. And if the victim does speak up, can you imagine what might happen to her in the car or at home? No. She has crossed a line. And that could increase um, the risk to her health and well-being significantly. So this is a place where we need to refer out to someone who is licensed and trained to deal with abuse and trauma. I would say that every church should have the National Domestic Violence Hotline number handy so that you have that if you need to refer um, a congregant to someone in a hurry. and I will provide you with all these resources so that you have these um, for anyone who listens. Yeah, uh, for, for those of you listening, we'll, we'll uh, collect these uh, and put them in our show notes so that you should be able to, to reference any links uh, and other books. So you can see that uh, listed hopefully below uh, when we get this posted. Great, thank you. Um, I have two books that I recommend. One is No Place for Abuse, and that looks at um, biblical and practical responses and resources to counteract domestic violence. So that's well-researched, well-thought-out. And then um, addressing domestic violence in the church is another good resource. So I will give you both titles and authors there. Um, I have the National Domestic Violence Hotline. They have a website that goes along with the number. So that's very helpful. Can you go ahead and just give that right now? Do you have that handy? um, Thehotline.org thehotline.org. Okay. Yes. Yes. And that is uh, a great place with lots of information and you can learn more about abuse. You can learn how to help. You can learn where to refer people. Um, And then I'm definitely a resource in this category. I'm available to speak or consult with groups and churches. Um, I have uh, just started a social media presence called Hope Rise Thrive, and that's on Facebook and Instagram. And my hope with that is to not only encourage survivors, but also bring awareness to uh, those in the church who need to know more about how to deal with domestic violence. Yeah, that's great. Hope Rise Thrive, Facebook, yes. Facebook and Instagram. That's really, really great. And and I'll just uh, offer my, my testimony of, of Janice's expertise. I mean, you've heard it already, but um, there, there are not a lot of people that are, are capable and, and, and know this subject matter quite like she does. And so encourage you, if you're listening and think this could be helpful for your church, for your Sunday school group, for your small group, for whatever it may be, um, reach out to, uh, Janice in those areas. So we come now to the number one, uh, point here to walk away. Uh, what would that be? I believe that the number one point is that we should be communicating that God's heart is for the wounded and the oppressed. If you look through the Psalms, this is woven all the way through. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. God sees the trouble of the afflicted and considers their grief. Defend the weak and fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And if you want to look at the New Testament, look at Jesus's first sermon as recorded in Luke 4, um, which he read the scroll from Isaiah. 
where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I believe from cover to cover, we can see how God's heart is for the oppressed. And that gives us hope. I think it gives hope to those who have been victimized by abuse, but I also think it gives hope to the church because we can respond together to the trauma and we can create safe spaces for those who have experienced abuse so that they can heal from what they've experienced. Yeah, that's really good. Um, just say amen, amen and amen to that. Um, thank you, Janice, for, for jumping on with us today. Um, friends, we realize this is not the tone always of our, our podcast, but um, we just we think it's very important and that we tackle some of these things that that is harming the church. And, and we want to bring light to where there's darkness in our, our God who loves us and loves the wounded and oppressed. Um, loves it when we shine light in the darkness. And so um, that's our encouragement to you today. Again, Denise, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I look forward to continued conversation. Um, Absolutely. And uh, we'll see you next time on Five Good Thoughts.